peace, love, and unity. Sings the reggae band Fortune Youth. We here at Solutions of Balance, as well as our guest today, Jeffrey Weisberg, and Dr. Micah Johnson, also believe in peace, love, and unity. You are listening to Solutions of Balance. We're so glad you're joining us today on Forward Radio, WFMB 106.5 FM. Solutions of Balance is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is an affiliate of the Global Fellowship for Reconciliation. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Jamie McMillan, here with Jim Johnson, your co-host for Solutions to Violence. We're happy to have with us today Dr. Micah Johnson and Mr. Jeffrey Weisberg of the River Phoenix Center for Peacemaking. They're located in Gainesville, Florida. Welcome, Jeffrey and, and Micah. Nice to have you with us. If you would, tell us a bit about yourselves and how you have come to choose this path of peacemaking. Let's begin with you, Micah. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Mental Health Law and Policy at the University of South Florida, and I'm a researcher. My research centers around race, poverty, trauma, and behavioral health. I've been an activist for social justice for about 14 years, and that sort of stems from growing up in the context of isolation, diminished resources, trauma, and just some really deep wounds, uh, intergenerational wounds, family wounds, but also some historical context. And as I grew as a young man attempting to sort of understand my own experiences, I realized that I wasn't alone, that people feel pain and people experience disconnection. And so in seeking to better understand that disconnection, it led me to my studies in a PhD program, and it really drove my activism moving forward. Well, thank you. Jeffrey? Yeah, good. Hello to your listeners. Yes, so I have been involved in experiential education for for many, many years, and uh, that led me to get trained as a certified mediator through the Florida Supreme Court, which I have been for going on 25 years now. And my wife and I started the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding maybe about 12, 13 years ago that was born out of our involvement with the Peace Alliance, which was advocating for and lobbying for a cabinet level Department of Peace, which would research, articulate and facilitate nonviolent solutions, both domestically and internationally. And as you can imagine, that is a behemoth lift It's like moving the Titanic with a straw. And so we took that idea into a local context uh, here in Gainesville, Florida, where we have been really moving these strategies and different practices forward with the aim of really embedding them and getting them into the lives and uh, minds of, of all sorts of different people from children and schools and law enforcement and the criminal justice system, et cetera. But really looking at um, what, what can we do to support people in you know, solutions to, to violence and the flip of that would be you know, solutions to peacemaking and peace building. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of answered this question, but can you give us a little more detail in terms of how you, Jeffrey, got started in, in the uh, River Phoenix Center for Peace Building uh, 
Yes. Yeah, so the way I really got involved with, with RPCP, it was an inspiration with my wife that we really wanted to do something together and also in honor of her late son, River Phoenix, the, the actor. And so we had been kicking around this idea, as, as I said, from the Department of Peace Legislation. And the family had a nonprofit that was focused on environmental protection. And so we took that nonprofit number and changed the mission and, and, um, and the name and started to develop our, our theory of change and our practices around uh, peace building that focuses on, on four key pillars, which is social emotional learning as a foundation of change and self-awareness and self-regulation, restorative justice, as a practice of managing and handling a conflict, dialogues, particularly police youth dialogues, and trauma, and understanding how all of those are foundational to really creating change in a community. So part of those initiatives is something called Breaking Divides. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, that, that concept of, of bridging divides, boy, right now in our, the United States, politically, we, we, I don't know that we've ever been quite as polarized, but those polarizations are a dynamic that exists in virtually all conflict. I'm right, you're wrong. It's mine, no, it's not. And so that idea of how do we bridge that divide, how do we build bridges of understanding is a core philosophy that really guides so much of our work, because in order for us to survive and in order for us to live in, in harmony and, and peace and in our highest potential, we have to be able to gain certain skill sets and, and provide certain structures on all levels of our society uh, for people to manage conflict more effectively. And, and Micah might have a few thoughts about that as well. Right. So, yeah. So in general, across the board, humans are growing more disconnected from one another. They're growing more disconnected from their neighbors, their environment, and even their own selves. And so at the very root of the peace building efforts and at the very root of uh, the divides are this, this disconnect that we see occurring. And so the question becomes, how do we reinvest our efforts into relationships, into our communities, into the spaces that define us. I uh, think about nouns, people, places, and things. We emphasize the things and we neglect the people and the, the places, but these are the types of nouns that define us. The people and the spaces are the truly the magic of the human experience. So we've neglected people and spaces broadly, especially those that we disown. So it's uh, that, that the, the core of these divides and this disconnect is, disowning, uh, feeling a lack of accountability, feeling a lack of connection to one another and to ourselves in some cases. So we must redefine ourselves and broaden our gaze. You know, uh, we are members of a human family, not just our relatives. The earth is our home, not just our house or our living quarters. And I think that that's the magic of RPCP. That's the abbreviation. The magic of RPCP is that underlining the mission statements and the programs, there's this really deep and profound effort to get back to being centered, to get back to being connected 
to one another, to get back to being kind, to get back to being better neighbors and better quality of human beings and getting back to truly valuing the, the people and the spaces that define us. There's, a, there's something behind the programs, something called driving factors. What are the driving factors that, and how do they guide the, those various programs from uh, RPCP? So I'm sort of the little brother in the room. Uh, Jeffrey has sort of taught me a tremendous amount of what it means to be a peace builder. What does it mean to be a part of this effort? But what I would like to say is that, and and Jeffrey will go into more detail, but I I do want to go back to this point of these programs are merely mechanisms by which we achieve sustainable peace. So a training on anti-Black racism is an exercise in accountability, empathy, maturity, imagination, courage, and kindness. Likewise, the police youth dialogue is about mending historical harms and contemporary wounds, but it's much bigger than that. It is about improving the human experience through accountability, empathy, maturity, imagination, courage, and kindness. So we have to go back to that river that flows through all of these programs. And those are two of my favorites, the police youth dialogue and the, the training on race, racial trauma, racial justice, anti-Black racism. These are, they seem very precise and they seem small, but they are connected to a much, much larger purpose. Yeah, I, I can build on that. Thank you, Micah. So what we've seen are a number of different driving factors that we need to pay attention to. And there's a couple of different examples that that I can share with you. But one is uh, a whole body of work called risk factors and protective factors. Risk factors are are those kind of circumstances that people live with and live in around poverty or homelessness or abuse and trauma, neglect, those kinds of things, environment. All of those are, are potentially risk factors that have a direct correlation to various outcomes, whether they be criminogenic or health outcomes, et cetera. And what we know in the field of, of peace building is that there are also factors and indicators that are precursors to violence and war, which is lack of access to market, high infant mortality, lack of access to uh, government and representation, environmental factors, all of those, when you put them through the equation, you can bet that more likely than not, there would be at least elevated stress, if not disruptions or, or violence. And so it's important for us to know what those are and, and how, what are the resources that are available or that we need to bring into various communities, kind of the marshal the forces, if you will, to address and, and mitigate many of those factors. And that's, that's what we're, we're trying to do as a collective, I think, in the field of peace building. Because there's probably, you've, you've shared this many times on, on this show around negative peace versus positive peace. Negative peace is the cessation of violence, right? There's no more fighting, but then what? And that's when peace builders come into a space to look at a systemic approach to addressing some of those risk factors, if you will. And that's really, really necessary for us to actually 
elevate and more, work more collaboratively in communities throughout the United States and, and the world. Okay, so you've done quite a bit of work in communities that you just mentioned, and there's an area called community justice training. This is designed for neighborhood residents where they were introduced to a number of skills. Can you talk about uh, your community justice training program? Yeah, sure. So what we have seen a bit in the field is one, still a resistance to people coming into neighborhoods or communities to do good work. And there's good reason why there's resistance and, and fear and blocking some of that based on colonialism, really. You know, that I, as a white man, I got a great idea. We have a great idea. So we're going to come in and show you, community, how, how to live better. And, um, and so that idea of, you know, coming into environments is something that has to be addressed. And so also, unless in, in people come to a, a particular program or resource, it may not reach their neighborhood or their, their homes. And so the community justice work, which is not original to us, but it is something that we're developing more fully, is this idea of how do we take these peace practices and bring them into an actual neighborhood? And some of this was inspired by our work in the Philippines. They have something called Barangays, which is a neighborhood, and they have neighborhood councils that use a restorative justice approach to dealing with conflict and, and disruptions. And not all incidents go through that process. If it's more severe, it would go through the government. But it was really inspiring for us to see that model and to develop our own version of that, where we brought to bear different practices of training on uh, participatory governance and trauma healing and restorative justice and conflict resolution, resourcing and networking. And so we've developed a, a six-week training where people come from different neighborhoods. And then once they get that training, they would go back into their home communities to start projects and to really grow this. But part of our interest really is to serve the refugee communities as well. There's over 65 million refugees worldwide, and the vast majority of those communities do not have uh, very effective systems of justice. The, the most predominant would be Sharia law, and that is not a restorative process. So it's, it's really looking at how could we train community members to take in their own hands how to transform conflict and resource themselves uh, through this kind of work. Okay, so you also talk about the term, quote, initiatives, unquote. The River Phoenix Center for Peace initiatives focus on areas like uh, movement history, but just supporting gov government, you mentioned these, restorative practices, conflict resolution, mediation, community conservation, power mapping, leadership, resource mobilization, accountability, and community capacity building. Could you pick a couple of those Dr. Micah, Jeffrey, and, and talk about those, your favorite ones. Right. So, um, you know, I'll go back into sort of uh, the stuff we've been able to do around, because it's timely, around race, but also some of the community capacity stuff. So with race in particular, most people are afraid to 
start this conversation. Most people are, are, are the body tenses up. There's some sort of reaction. But what we've found is that we've had we've created some magical moments and having some really real discussions around race. And in those discussions, instead of it being contentious or instead of there being sort of uh, this polarizing traumatic experience, it was a very healing experience and a very unifying experience that we could be bonded. And I think the magic in this is that humanizing all parties and understanding that stress is real and everyone can experience stress and trauma, but our ability to empathize and to consider someone else's perspectives and be, be connected to someone else's pain is what allows us to process these experiences and not feel challenged or threatened, but to feel connected to someone else's pain and then bond in that mutual uh, respect for human dignity, for freedom, and for compassion for one another. I think that what, what I've seen us be able to do has been something that I haven't seen replicated in other spaces because the approach is coming from one of a peace building approach. It's coming from a approach of compassion. It's coming from a, a place where our intent is so pure, uh, even though our, the content itself is difficult to digest for anyone, but our approach is so pure that it brings out the best in people. So I've been a part of racial justice trainings and the trauma of being poor and black sort of trainings with people from all walks of life from all over the world. And people that don't really understand the American context or the American sort of issues surrounding race and ethnicity, but they learn and they become connected to those issues and they bond and we move forward. And I think after each of those training sessions, we all leave feeling empowered. We feel optimistic and we feel a little bit more informed. So now that we are informed and we're empowered, we could take action. And that to me is where the magic is. That's, that's what it's all about. Going back to when we were children, when we dreamed about being heroes and doing something meaningful that would bring joy in people's lives. That's for me is the true magic of it and what keeps me excited about this work. Uh, it's the part of it that where you see the aha moments, but also those moments when you see the, the incredible part of the human experience, that people are capable of extraordinary acts of kindness and goodness and righteousness. Yeah, you, you know, that's, that's so uh, beautiful because what, what I hear in that um, explanation of initiatives from Micah is this idea of being solutionaries. We, we are solution focused. And the definition of initiative is the ability to assess and initiate things independently. So where you have inventiveness or resourcefulness, capabilities, imagination. And, and so we want to change the world. You know, we do call it in, in a certain way, a revolution of sorts, because many people are, are quite locked into their experience and perception of the other and right and wrong. And so when we get locked in that place, there's really not a lot of movement. And so much of our work is around building connection through A, B, C, D, E, F, G, kind of any way that you, you can imagine. And one example of, of that is our police youth dialogues, where you have a huge chasm of mistrust between particularly black and brown youth and, and law enforcement. 
and a great misunderstanding of law enforcement of, of youth. And so how do you build, build a bridge of understanding? So we've done over 110 of these dialogues where we're bringing young people together with officers for three, four, five hours to have a conversation and to explore uh, our stereotypes and our perceptions of one another. And so what we also find is that there is a huge openness in so many different ways for a different way of relating and a different way of addressing behaviors in schools and law enforcement and prisons. And so we encourage people to, you know, you might have to make it up and, and you test it out and see if it is effective. But once it is, then you can start to grow some credibility. And that credibility leads to trust in you as a practitioner or as an organization. And that will continue to open doors for, for new opportunities uh, and initiatives. Give us a, a, an example of one of the magical moment of discussions. Well, Michael was talking a little bit about the, you know, in, in the magic of, of conversations, but we, we had a case where a young man uh, did what's called an armed home invasion. So he and a couple other guys had a gun and they went into somebody's house to rob them. Terrorized the, the owner of the house, a man, who eventually was able to like escape and run away. And um, this young person got caught and was in jail for about 280 days before he had the opportunity to do a restorative justice circle with the, the, the owner of the house. And through that conversation, this young person who was African-American and his parents and the, the owner of the house who was white and the defense attorney and the prosecutor all were in a room. And through the course of the conversation, the victim or the impacted party, we like to say, he said, I don't want this young man to go to, to prison. He was facing 10 years to life. And this guy said, I don't want him to go to prison. I want him to have another chance. And it was such a powerful conversation between this small community and then when they went before the judge, the judge agreed to this young person not spending any more days in jail or prison. He was going to be on probation for six years, but he, he was able to continue on with his, his education and his football, et cetera. So that's, that's kind of an extreme example. Not many judges would let that go forward, but it is hopefully illustrative of what the potential is for deeper understanding and accountability, which I think is something sorely missing, that combination in our justice process. Yeah, we, we have done an interview with uh, restorative justice folks, and that's a, a story that is repeated. Uh, fortunately, it's repeated in a number of ways that makes people come together. Let, let's, uh, let's move toward your global peacemaking uh, part of your work. You've been partnering with the U.S. State Department since 2015, is that right, as a host organization? That's correct. What does a host organization mean, and, and how do you work with a government agency, in this case, the U.S. State Department? Yeah, this is um, one of many exchange programs that the, the United States government sponsors and, and, and pays for. This is through an organization called IREX, I-R-E-X. And within IREX is the Community Solutions Program. 
and they bring highly trained and advanced practitioners of, in four different areas, governance and transparency, women and gender, environmental sustainability, and peace building. And they bring those fellows over for a four-month internship. There's usually about 80 or 90 fellows that get placed in about 60 different organizations around the United States. And if your listeners ever are interested in being a host, at the end, you can share my contact information, uh, but you could also look it up. So we've had people from Sierra Leone, Philippines, Ukraine, Israel, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Serbia, and Paraguay. And through that program, we've actually been to the Philippines, Uganda, Bosnia, Sarajevo, and um, Ukraine to further the the learning and collaboration in uh, our peacebuilding efforts. Okay. So in terms of, quote, programs and services, in quote, RPCP offers uh, core areas of practices that got your work. And some of those areas, restorative justice, you've talked about already somewhat, social, emotional learning, dialogues, trauma awareness, resilience building, other programs as well. How are your programs different from services that you offer? Yeah, I, you know, I, I mean, a service would be facilitating a restorative justice circle would be a service or mediation, which is something that we do. Oh, I see. Um, or coaching in a way, like conflict coaching versus a program would be our communication and self-esteem, which we offer to young people on probation. We offer in schools, we offer it in prisons. And then we do a lot of training and it's been a wonderful challenge in COVID for us to move online, to do our training online. Um, And we're working with a school right now. We've trained a hundred teachers online virtually and continuing to do additional kinds of of trainings like that. So it's a combination of of services, direct services, uh, but we're more of a training organization and Micah can talk a little bit about our train the trainer model and, and kind of where we're moving to towards in terms of getting some of that in the hands of more people. Sure. Yeah. So again, it's about the work. It's about a, a bigger cause. So we're, we're constantly challenging ourselves to connect with new communities to how can our programs be translatable to different populations, to a broader audience? How can we empower communities and individuals with the tools they need to champion uh, peaceful conflict resolution and just self-empowerment and community empowerment in general? So we're constantly challenging ourselves and thinking of ways to do that. And it's a testimony to this approach we take of acting locally with global reach. And um, it started in our, in our own backyard, building deeper relationships and extending beyond that. Uh, and I think in the future, what we'll have to do is we'll have to have two approaches. One approach would be to continue to train the trainer, continue to invest in our sort of training initiatives, but also sort of to deepen people's expertise and have deepened their knowledge of peace studies and have more evidence-based practices. This requires a tremendous investment in sort of a research and training and education infrastructure. And I think that that's the the wave of the future. So you talked about restorative justice, and evidently you are involved in training teachers in a public school system in Gainesville, I guess. So restorative practices 
policy is involved in the Florida's public schools. Jamie and I are retired teachers from the Jefferson County public school system here in Louisville. And so we're very interested in, in how restorative practices, how that's going with the public school system in Florida in terms of uh, restorative practices. There are a number of school districts in Florida, uh, Orange County and Sarasota and down in uh, Miami and, and many other places, but those uh, school districts are using it more widely. Alatric County has it in some of their student code of conduct and some of their policies, but haven't really gone all in yet. And so we're working with PK Young, which is a research developmental school through the University of Florida in Gainesville. And so that's that's kind of a unique school. It's not a part of the Alachua County School District, so they can do some things a little bit differently. And so we've trained all of the teachers and some administrators in restorative practices, which is a little distinct from restorative justice. Restorative practices as, is more of how to use some of the philosophy and practices more informally. So restorative conversations, restorative groups and, and restorative spaces, et cetera. The restorative more formal circles typically take more time and they're used for more severe or serious kind of incidences of harm. But the other element of approach in this training, besides teaching all the educators in restorative practices, is something called advisory. And so advisory is when a teacher and students get together weekly or every day, kind of could be like a morning meeting or something like that. It's less formal, but there you're building a, a rapport and a, a level of, of trust with the students. And so this is one way to embed and practice the, the restorative techniques, if you will. And then in addition to that, we are doing critical conversations on race. And this is mandatory for all the staff to participate in a monthly conversation about race in, in small groups. And it's quite impressive that the leadership of the school is, is taking this position because we know that black and brown children are more likely to get a referral and suspended and expelled. And those children are more likely to enter the criminal justice system than white kids. And Florida has you know, some pretty, pretty poor records where there's a disparity of up to 400% in some communities. And so really bringing restorative practices into those environments is one core approach and having the administration and the leadership really be behind it. But it takes practice, a lot of practice for teachers and educators to use this skill set and to take this on seriously because a lot of educators think that they're there just to deliver the math lesson or the English lesson. And so we are asking for teachers and educators to expand their scope of, of practice to include you know, a, a much deeper understanding uh, of what it is to support children. So is there any data as, as of currently, maybe uh, in terms of uh, decreasing suspension rates or referrals written by uh, teachers? There, there is. I couldn't cite it right now. I don't have it in front of me, but I know that PK, the school that we're working with, has seen a drastic reduction in their referrals. 
uh, because they're just handling it differently. But I can give you another piece of data. This is, this is hard data, which is that our police department through collaboration with us and, and several others have changed their policies. So they're no longer arresting children in school except for the most uh, severe cases like a weapon. And they have reduced their on-school arrests by 96% over the last three years. And their overall youth arrests by 46% over the last three years. And so and restorative justice, restorative practices is, is not uh, like enough necessarily. It really requires a, a, a comprehensive community approach that certainly includes law enforcement and mental health and uh, other resourcing of, of children and families. There's numerous different you know, mechanisms for that, that we could certainly talk about, but that those are some, some uh, data points that might be interesting for some of your listeners. So let, let's talk about police youth dialogues. That stands out to us one of the most necessary in resolving tensions between authority and the accused and community and government, especially at the crucial divisive period that we're in right now in the, in the history of the U.S. At, at, at this point in the country, we're, we're making significant history in the streets, in the elections, in healthcare. So we want to get it right and, and a lasting part of our heritage. So share with us parts of uh, elements of these police youth dialogues and, and tell us about the, the successes, the challenges and, and learnings you've had with them. Yeah, so let's, let's tag team this one. I, I think um, I'll set it up as you know, some of the challenges and then you go into the programs that sort of address uh, the, the, the challenges. So, so what the country has seen, the country has been introduced to something that's very ancient and longstanding. It, these tensions between the law enforcement officers or agents of the state, whether they be formal, formally or informal agents of the state and uh, certain underserved communities. And usually there's a disconnect culturally, historically, racially, uh, socioeconomically from more marginalized or underserved communities and then law enforcement officers. And so this relate, the tension there is rooted in this sort of really negative and harmful ways of dealing with people and enforcing laws. And some of the laws were just unjust laws. And so you, then you had agents that represented this injustice or represented these uh, disproportionate, uh, uh, these laws that disproportionately impacted these communities. And so that strain comes from, it comes from uh, a time of slavery with slave patrols and slave catchers and then it evolved to a more formalized enforcement of the state's policies until you you know until you, this this point of like just very harsh disproportionate services provided in these communities and what i mean by disproportionate services is because this is a professional service that is not being fulfilled equitably in every community some communities have a very different relationship with law enforcement than other communities. And so particularly with youth and particularly with youth of color, but other youth that may be marginalized, they grow up in a world where they're isolated and the only times that they see these police officers, these adult police officers, is when they come to take people away, to make arrests, to search, to harass. And that's a traumatic experience to be uh, sort of hunted 
by strangers who you do not know and you don't necessarily trust their intention because of folklore, because of history or because of your own experiences. So that's the background. That's what walks into the room. And so you have two groups of people that are tremendously misunderstood, tremendously stigmatized in police officers and a youth, particularly marginalized youth and youth of color. And they're coming into a setting where many of them are sitting down in the same room for the first time. And you have, pol- you have police officers and, and, and uh, professionals that are affiliated with law enforcement that will have their guards up. They'll have your, their own frustrations, their own uh, professional and personal issues that they're trying to navigate, difficult lives, difficult professions, maybe not paid enough, maybe overworked, certainly not appreciated enough in society. And then you have youth that are stigmatized as incompetent, as untrustworthy, as criminal. You have laws that are only laws because they are youth. Status offenses such as curfew. Uh, By the way, most youth enter the juvenile justice system through status offenses, not more serious crimes. So you have youth cultural differences, generational tensions. And so those things walk in the room and then the police youth dialogue, we have to sort of bring everyone up to speed on trauma, everyone up to speed on race. And then at the same time, we have to bring everyone up to speed on social emotional learning, adolescent brain development. We have to bring everyone up to speed on what it means to be a professional law enforcement officer, their rules, their, the policies that they live by, and then also tools in which how do we engage in dialogue and dismantle these perceived differences between us. And Jeffrey, you can take it from there and go into exactly how we do that. Yeah. Okay. When we first started this program in Gainesville, I was the only civilian invited in to to this training. And the training as a police youth dialogue up in uh, Philadelphia was, was really only for new cadets while they're in the academy. And so our team saw that 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 doesn't that's not good enough we want line officers to have have this exposure and experience of in, interacting with young people and and uh, for young people to be able to ask questions and and a part of the impetus was really to address D, the DMC numbers that we have which stands for disproportionate minority contact so more black and brown youth enter the criminal justice system than white people. Alatri County was the second worst in the state of Florida. And, and so what we did was we developed this training where we have a, the first hour just with law enforcement to explain what DMC is and how it shows up and, and its uh, impact on communities. And a lot of law enforcement would push back because they're like, well, we don't arrest black kids more than white kids. You know, if they're doing the crime, they should pay the time. But it, in fact, many minority neighborhoods are over-policed and, and the data does show that. We also wanted officers to understand what how, how adolescent brain development affects behavior and how trauma affects development. And so with that different perspective of DMC and trauma and adolescent brain development, we are asking the officers to come into the conversation with, with a new lens. And, and we, in split groups, we ask uh, each of the officers separate from the, the young people to fill out a, 
page that we call A to Z. And so you have the alphabet on a, on a big piece of paper. And, you know, so what do you think of cops? And the kids would say a-hole or, you know, oh my God, you know, lots of cuss words. <laughs> I don't want to say it on the air, but tons of cuss words. And they, you know, usually K for killer and R for racist. And then the cops, their lists are arrogant, and belligerent, and cocky, and defiant. And then when we come together, we do kind of an icebreaker and uh, create some agreements of how we want to be together. And then we unpack that A to Z list. And most of the time, it's, it's a bit uh, inflammatory. And uh, however, every single time, I said before, we've done about 110 of these. Uh, every single time, there's been someone that has acknowledges, you know what, you're right. We, we are like that. We can be like that. And so it opens a doorway uh, for a, a much deeper conversation uh, that continues through the several hours of, of the dialogue where we share a meal together. The young people do a role play so they get to be the cops and the cops are the kids in a, in a traffic stop, all uh, in the name of building new understanding and, and some level of trust and partnership. Because when our, the community has a problem, they should feel safe enough to call law enforcement. Uh, so those are a few different uh, aspects of the dialogue. It sounds like listening and empathy has something to do with the results uh, and, and the challenges that you have. Are there any learnings that uh, you, have, you have found for, for yourself and for the program through this dialogue? Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, again, I, I, the point is, is that these are two very polarized groups often. And yet every single one of these dialogues, we've trained about 1,200 police and about 2,000 young people. And not every kid and every cop, but in every dialogue, Michael was using that, that phrase of, of magic. There's been just an increase in kind of willingness to engage and kids who hadn't prior expressed the interest in becoming a police officer sometimes have said, you know what, I, I want to be a, a police officer or a, or a sheriff's deputy. And that we, we do a pre and a post survey. And so what that data has shown us is an increase in young people's uh, trust of law enforcement, their willingness to engage with law enforcement, feeling that law enforcement does have, uh, by and large, our best interests at heart, if you will. And so those kinds of experiences and those processes are what Micah and I are looking at really seriously of adapting to bring out into the community for adults to have conversation, not just with law enforcement, but say red and blue black and white, whatever these kind of polarized camps are, we want to go into those communities and create uh, safe and effective uh, conversations and dialogues, not only for understanding, but ultimately so that we could, in fact, partner with some of the real issues that communities face and solve some of those in, in a collective, collaborative way. 
Yeah, yeah. It sounds like uh, even parent and child kinds of <laughs> conversations need to be start, started as well. There are uh, demonstrations that are occurring in the cities across the country and even internationally. Here in Louisville, though, we, we've heard the Justice for Brianna protest that have lasted now over 150 days. Uh, does River Phoenix Center support uh, demonstrations like that? Uh, is there a better way for a civil rights community to deal with uh, economic inequalities and, and injustice or just, uh, and, and, and even violence? And I appreciate that, that question. So uh, demonstrations in general, there's no such thing. I mean, it, even at these de- demonstrations, you'll see disputes over tactics. At every demonstration I've ever seen, there's been someone who's on message, on strategy, and someone who is not as informed of the strategy and the message and just is doing their own thing. So it's hard to blanketly say if we support anyone or not, but me personally, and I've, I've actually participated in many, many demonstrations. And this is an ancient tradition. This goes back to the founding of this nation. We demonstrate, we peacefully assemble, we peacefully protest. Sometimes we do it simply to, as a way of expression. Sometimes we do it as a means of it, of just tradition. For example, uh, the Macy's Day Parade is a demonstration. The 4th of July parades are a demonstration. We, we do these things. We gather peacefully and express ourselves as Americans. Now, what we have to do is check ourselves and think about our, think about what's happening when we start picking and choosing which peaceful protests we like and which ones we dislike. I've seen red and blue protest. As an American, as a patriot, I love both sides when they're exercising that ancient tradition. And it's actually a duty. It's a duty to uphold that, that right to, to peacefully assemble and to, and to protest and to express yourself. Um, with that being said, I think that some of these demonstrations are much more well-developed, organized than others. And some folks have been engaged in this research for the past 30 years. Some people were simply upset, their hearts were broken, and they felt like they had to do something. So they, they went outside their homes to express their frustrations. And that's okay. But then you'll create a situation where it's so diverse and it's hard to sort of uh, stay on message. It's hard to understand strategy. It's hard to communicate. And People digest these things differently. But I think a lot of the reason why people digest these things differently is not necessarily uh, the, the, the violence or some of the, the other pieces of it, because I think everyone agrees that the, the violence is distracting and harmful to the, to the actual message and the purpose. But I think people digest these things differently because of these are hot button issues and that people have passions. And this goes back to something Jeffrey said. And I think that you you talked about what's the takeaway, so to speak, of these dialogues. I think the takeaway is in two pieces. One, know what the purpose is, what the mission is. As a law enforcement officer, as a youth, my mission is not to win an argument. My mission is to understand. My mission is to listen. That's what courage looks like in that context of a dialogue. Courage is the ability to listen and be changed by it. And similarly, when we're anytime we're in a situation where we feel emotionally charged because of someone else's ideas or someone else's perspective, the true mission there is not to speak louder, 
speak more intelligently, not to bully your way out of a difficult conversation, but to listen and try to connect and allow yourself to be improved in some way by that connection. That is at the root of all of this. So ultimately we're all, again, this disconnect that we all experience as members of the human family. Um, we have to reconnect with each other. We have to challenge ourselves to not just be right, not just be loud, not just feel correct or safe in our traditions and our sense of normalcy, but to connect because it's so easy to be divided. It's so easy to allow ourselves to be divided and retreat into our corners, but it's much more difficult to challenge ourselves to strengthen relationships and to connect. And it, and it is like a marriage. It is, it's very much like a relationship because you have to work at it. It's tough. You don't want to do it, but we cannot continue to go to sleep angry at each other because we'll wake up each day further and further away from one another. That makes so much sense. Uh, to say to someone, you, you've got to be peaceful uh, is really difficult for people to put in practice. But when we say, listen, that you say is, and we agree, is that one of the most difficult things to do, especially without reacting. You know, being quiet and just listening and not, not reacting at all, or maybe agreeing or shaking your head uh, in agreement, but not interrupting, not having to feel like you have to respond immediately, but just to listen. That may be one of our key ways to work our country back to uh, a united country. 100% well said. And, and that's it. That's it. And it is difficult. And so in regard to a demonstration, I think that they're trying to force a conversation or to force attention. And, and that's actually, that's not bad either. It's sort of like sometimes, and I hate to say uh, toddler, but sometimes you have a partner, your partner will maybe behave irrationally, you may seem. They're trying to get your attention to start a conversation about something much deeper. So it's not about disrupting traffic. We need to have a conversation. If you continue to be distracted, if you continue to ignore me, then the issues will get deeper. The, the problems will get bigger. And I think that that is a huge challenge but we're up for the task. I mean, it's so difficult to listen in a relationship. It's so difficult to listen when you're upset. It's much harder to do that when you don't have a relationship with that person. And maybe you may be different, but a lot of those differences and divides are perceptual. They're not real. Uh, when I got to grad school, I was um, homeless for a time period of my life and I was taken in by rednecks. And I'm talking about Southern rednecks. I'm a city boy from Orlando and I was taken in by deep red, like, like red, proud rednecks. And they showed me love and they cooked lima beans like big mama cooked lima beans. And they cooked the fried chicken. I hate to say fried chicken, but they cooked fried chicken and soul food the way my family cooked it. You know, it, for them, it was just cooking. For us, it was soul food. And when I got to college to get my, you know, when I was pursuing, pursuing my PhD, I would tell people that I have more in common with a redneck in Gainesville than some of my colleagues, because it was a class dynamic that was bigger than any race dynamic. And I feel comfortable in those environments because I know I, I have that relationship. I have that experience. I know what it's like to break bread with a country, white, good Christian, God-loving white folks. I know what it's like to see people work as hard as they possibly can, but be so different from you culturally in a way, but also very similar to you in a way. And they still show you a tremendous amount of love. Those rednecks taught me a lot of about what it meant to be a man. And they, they wanted me to succeed. 
And so all of the perceived differences between this urban black city boy and these, these deep South rednecks, what's well, all just a, a it was just a, a figment of our imagination. It was some, a story that we were told that wasn't as real. The fact of the matter is we have deep connections. We have a lot in common and we're brothers and sisters, members of this human family. It doesn't mean that I don't experience racism. It just means that I would need their love and support as I experience racism and all other stresses of life. And I think that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. We, we noticed that here, here in Louisville, most African-Americans live in the West End and below the poverty line, but also people on the west side of Jefferson County, white people, some would label them rednecks, like you've been, you've been using that term, also live below the poverty line. And so those two groups, even though philosophically uh, very different, they have a lot in common. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that story out. That's a, that's a fascinating story. Let's get a little more specific here in terms of demonstrations it's because of the demonstrations that are going on in Louisville and other cities currently. The Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, ECLED, announced more than 7,700 Black Lives Matter demonstrations in all 50 states in Washington, D.C. between May 26th and 20, August 22. The ECLED documented that 93% of these demonstrations were peaceful. But the accurate results also published in newspapers across the country, in New York Times, the Louisville Courier Journal, for example. However, Eglit also documented the fact, pointed out that some violence did occur. For example, although neither was seriously injured, two officers were shot during protests and looting did occur. The first two nights of demonstrations here in Louisville. Does River Phoenix feel like they, they have a right to suggest the demonstrators how they should conduct their protest. And if they feel like they have that right, you what would you suggest to Black Lives Matter in terms of how to conduct their protest? I would um, never you know, dictate how people should, should protest. That, that's not our approach. But what I would add to, to this kind of topic is that I've demonstrated before, certainly for Black Lives Matter or for the war in Iraq or numerous other instances where I felt like I wanted to be in community in that expression. Um, and so I think it's really, really powerful. However, I'm, I'm not sure that it's the most effective change agent for people who disagree with us. So there's a concept called spectrum of allies. And on one end, you have active supporters. On the opposite, you have active uh, obstructors. And in the middle, you have neutral. And then you have passive supporters and passive resistance. And so our job in, in the field of advocacy and peace building, I think one of them, is how do we bring people along that spectrum of allies closer towards their involvement and participation? And it, it's a big rally, you know, most of those demonstrations are, but I don't think they go far enough in terms of providing people with the skill set uh, or mechanisms of, of change, real lasting change. And so if they are going to do that, as we've seen with the salt march and stuff like that, a lot of those take a long time and a lot of people, which is happening in the United States. I, I've heard that these marches over the last uh, six, six months at least uh, are unprecedented 
and more effective in many ways than the marches of uh, the Vietnam era. But my, my approach, uh, you know, as a representative of RP, RPCP is how do we bring it in, into a local context and, and empowering people to engage in more effective and, and constructive ways uh, or different and constructive ways, not, not, not to make a judgment about protesting because I think it is an effective strategy, but I believe that there are others um, that people are longing to learn about. And so it's not about don't do that. Here's some alternatives or here's some additional strategies that you can use in addressing some of the issues that you have in your, in your own life, in your family, and in your communities. Strategies in terms of protest or strategies in terms of Strategies in terms of peace building, you know, in terms of advocacy and strategies in, in terms of what, what are some of these tools or skills that we need to be practicing more of. And, and that, that's really what I'm talking about is how do we get some of those skill sets into the hands of people. Now, granted, I, I think a lot of people who are protesting, they're protesting against injustice oftentimes. You know, so I think that's a, a bigger, bigger conversation and a bigger picture of how do we create change. But we're mostly focused on a community level of bringing to bear some of these different practices to address, you know, what is justice? How do we support our communities? How do we grow some of these social emotional competencies? and change the various systems, the criminal justice system, educational system. But I also would emphasize the Police Youth Dialogue book as well, coming out earlier spring, is probably the cost a cup of a coffee. So it's, it's really affordable, and, but it's packed with a lot of useful information that we think will support the peace building effort. So what's the email to uh, River Phoenix? Uh, they can go info, I-N-F-O, info at centerforpeacebuilding.org. Info okay. at centerforpeacebuilding.org. Okay, so listeners, we're, we're out of time. Our guest today has been River Phoenix for Peacebuilding Executive Jeffrey Weisberg and his, uh, the Secretary, Dr. Michael Johnson. Thank you, folks, for your participation. Our program will be repeated Tuesday, November 24th at 8 a.m. and again Wednesday, November 25th at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. So uh, we will place uh, in our archives uh, this program Wednesday, November 28th, uh, 2020. Solutions of Violence program that features River Phoenix Center for Peace Builders Executive Jeffrey Weinsberg and Director of Community Justice, uh, Dr. Michael Johnson. Folks, we're going to leave you with one last thought. This is uh, from Helen Keller. I do not want the peace that passeth understanding. I want the understanding which bringeth peace. Thank you for listening.